Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey guys, it's Mike and Davina here, and thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Master Your Mix podcast. I'm really excited for today's episode. I got to tell you a little bit of background story leading into this episode. So basically, it goes back to being a teenager. When I was a teenager, I was really into a lot of heavier music. I was really into metal. I was into a lot of thrashy, straightforward punk rock, where the music was more about just intensity in terms of just like getting at your aggression and just being angry and all that kind of stuff. And then at some point in my teens, I came across this band called Dashboard Confessional. When I first found that first record, which was called The Places You Have Come to Fear the Most, that record to me just changed things in my life. It made me realize that music could be emotional in a completely different way. It wasn't always about just getting at your aggression. It was about just revealing your true feelings and not being afraid to express some stuff that you might be a little self-conscious about or shy about, exposing hurt and passion and all sorts of stuff like that. To me, that was a really influential part of my life. And I think that it it really made me realize like, yeah, music doesn't always have to be angry. And obviously, I mean, there's lots of other genres out there where music isn't angry, but this was just the first time that I found a band that I just really connected with and that spoke to a lot of the experiences that I was having in my life and different feelings I was feeling. And as I got into the Dashboard catalog a little bit more, I discovered bands like Further Seems Forever, which was another project that the singer Chris Carappa was part of. And even that band was a band that, again, was very emotional, exposed the truth, exposed their true feelings. But at the same time, that was a band that was also very progressive. And they experimented with different time signatures. And it was just a very different form of music that I wasn't used to listening to. It just made me realize that, you know, music doesn't always have to be the same formula that that at least I was used to listening to at that point. To me, these records played a major role in just my development as a teenager, I feel. The guy behind those records was James Paul Wisner. And James was the producer... And he really knows how to capture the essence and emotion of these singers. And that was something that really captivated me. As I listened to the rest of his catalog, which includes bands like Paramore, Under Oath, Hands Like Houses, Versa Emerge, and a ton more. The thing that stands out to me is that he always gets that raw emotion and intensity out of the singers. And... I really connect with a lot of those records, so I was really excited to have him on this podcast because I think that when it comes to recording vocals and creating songs that people connect to, you really do need to learn how to capture that. Especially like when you have a singer who is pouring their heart out and writing these very heartfelt, emotional lyrics that are very close and true to their hearts, sometimes they're a little hesitant to reveal those emotions in the way that they sing it and the way they perform it. But James has a way of getting that out of people, and I absolutely love it. So I was really excited to have him on today's episode because we get into some of that. We get into his vocal recording technique and what he does to to capture that stuff. And I think what he says is actually really impressive and amazing. And to be honest with you, the night after I recorded this podcast, I had a recording session where I was doing some vocals, and I took the advice that James gives in this episode and experimented and tried it out with the singer that I was recording, and it actually worked. It was amazing. It got this emotion out of the singer that I never expected that I would get. And, you know, the singer was a little hesitant to at first kind of reveal what he was singing about. But as I kind of did the techniques that James talks about in this episode, it got it out of the singer. So I think it's really awesome. And I'm super excited for you to hear what he has to talk about in this episode. Let's not waste any more time. Let's just jump right into the interview here. So, James, thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, good to be here, man. Awesome. So before we start, can you give us a little bit of background on how you got into producing and, you know, how you got into music in general? Yeah, my, uh, well, both my father and mother were musicians and my father in particular was a, a pretty big music producer in the, in the 60s and uh, 70s. And so it was something as I was growing up, it was in the family and, and you know, I just started taking to instruments pretty early and and then just started getting into it my mother actually who's really supportive uh, at one point built me a studio 
and and that was in my mid teens, and that's kind of how I started. That's amazing. Yeah, it was it was it was awesome, and and got a lot of just basic training. I wasn't really studying anything. I took a course, but at that point, I was just really excited about just doing it on my own, and uh, just really used my ear a lot, and and uh, and made these little eight track reel to reel recordings of of stuff, and um, and and then later, and I'd say about. 10 years later is, is when I really decided to take it seriously uh, and, and become a music producer. So That's awesome. So you said that your, your mom bought you your first studio. From what I've researched, your, your dad and your mom were both musicians. They produced, or, or your dad at least produced. Were you like almost like interning with them along the way to learn all this stuff? Uh, well, my dad, I, you know, growing up uh, in, in New Jersey, uh, I went in with him on a few sessions and and then he also had a demo studio in the in the basement, and uh, and even before I came down, uh, you know, at a certain point they they had separated, and and uh, and so in in New Jersey, I he, on his demo studios when I just initially got, you know, started playing around with the reel to reel recorders, and and I'd also you know the Beatles had a really big influence on my early years, so I was also really interested in the you know early recording techniques that they they used so you were in the studio with your family and what sort of lessons were you learning as you were in there were you just kind of a fly on the wall just watching everything or were you actually getting involved in the projects well with my dad it was just uh you know i just went in and you know uh sometimes when when he was doing sessions and on one end i was very young and i was just kind of seeing it you know a real overall sense of things it really wasn't until uh particularly in my, my mid teens, when my mom built me a studio basically with, uh, out of the garage. And, you know, she was seeing that, that I was, you know, had a real interest in it. And then I really was, it was really on my own out of just a real strong passion. And like I say, at the time I was really into the Beatles and I had this eight track reel to reel and me and some friends, I, you know, I was just pretty obsessed about it and just, uh, recorded any chance, you know, after, Anytime not going to school, you know, I was basically in the studio. For sure. And you obviously play a bunch of instruments, right? Yes. Yes, I do. Uh, so around five years old, you know, I, I started playing around with the piano. And uh, and then I'd say about 11 years old, uh, started picking up guitar a little bit. And that's something, you know, I've carried with me through my whole life. And, you know, it definitely has a, a, a big impact on on the productions I do. Yeah, I was going to say, like, how do you feel your ability to play an instrument has influenced the work that you do? Well, just in that, because uh, because I am a, a musician, and and it depends the situation I'm, I'm, you know, the band that I'm working with, or if it's an artist, you know, usually there's there's a place, you know, I'll hear something, or you know, uh, and certainly I'm working with the the guitar players, but if I hear something myself and 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 playing it a certain way, and they're 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 liking it, and more so on the keyboard side or programming side. You know, I'm I'm usually adding something, and so as far as adding instruments, that's definitely you know a- adding to the productions that I'm working with. So I, I know you consider yourself to be more of a producer than a mixing engineer, and we'll get to how you're kind of shifting a little bit. But uh, I'm curious just to get your take on how you define the role of a producer, because I, I feel like these days there's a lot of mixed opinions of what a producer should and shouldn't be doing. Like, wh- what do you think the role of a producer should be? Yeah, yeah, I think in an overall sense, it's it's getting a sense with the band of what they're looking to create and you know, on one end, kind of being a, a coach and a director to guide them towards creating that that vision that that they're looking for. So, like in the broadest sense, I would say that's the overall goal. And I and I'll get a sense of what they're looking to do. And my goal is to is to create something that that really feels true to them, but is also a better version than what maybe they were thinking. So, in the best case scenario, that that when we're done, they're like, yeah, this is what we wanted to do. And it's even, it's even better. And it really defines a sound, you know, really defines, uh, that, that when you listen to the band, you can listen and say, Hey, that, that feels like this particular band. Mm-hmm. So before you even start a session, then are there any steps that you're taking 
before even entering the studio to to really make sure that everybody's aligned and has the same vision of how how to yeah, get that sound. That's absolutely. And and at a certain point in doing this, I realized that sometimes not everybody's on the same page. And so having those early discussions months before they come in about what are you guys looking to do and making sure everybody's on the same page because that definitely avoids potential issues when you finally do get into the the studio. And, and because sometimes bands are evolving too with their sound. And so there'll be a new record and, and they're wanting to go in different directions and you want to make sure everybody's on the same page. Yeah. So what kind of discussions are you having ahead of time? Well, one in terms of, you know, sit together and really talk about your goals and what are you looking to do for that particular record? And, and then the other big part is the songs, you know, bands these days, uh, usually have some sort of way of doing demos and that's really uh the the next biggest thing uh is is getting that sound you know is uh working on the songs and making sure that the songwriting is in a a good place and uh if they're looking to be a little you know going in a little bit of a different direction to to push them to listen to the type of people who are really doing it in the way that they you know want to do it and I just get into the conversation and, and get into the craft of songwriting and maybe looking at some of the holes that are going on in their songs potentially and tightening things up. Yeah, for sure. Now, in terms of uh, you mentioned, you know, talking about their goals and, and obviously that'll play a role into it, it, that'll play a role in how you approach the rest of the project. Yeah, I, I would assume that most people go into these kind of meetings saying, well, you know, we want to make this great sounding album and we want to have some success on the radio maybe, or like, you know, just build up our fan base, like typical things I would think a band would have in mind. Right. Yeah. Like, do you find that that often does really change the way you approach a record? Or are these bands already coming in with that mindset of like, that's what we're doing. And so we're, we're writing these songs for that purpose or, or like, are, are they coming to you to help create that even further? Like take, take their songs and, and just almost transform them completely. It depends. It, it depends on, on, uh, you know, generally the bands and, and more, more recently where everybody, you know, definitely wants to achieve a certain level of, uh, you know, they, they want to be, you know, a rock star, or, you know, have a six, a, a hit single. Um, but I'll find out from them first and, and, uh, and then I get a sense and I talk with them about what they're looking for from the producer. You know, how much do they want me to, to get involved with things? Do they want me to add parts if I'm hearing them or how much do they want me to get involved, uh, with the songwriting. So it can depend. And, and, uh, and I look, and that's part of the thing of being a producer too, is, is kind of being the overall director of if, if other people are needed, you know, what does it take to, to, to fulfill the vision that the band's looking to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then in terms of the songwriting, uh, it, just based on what you said there, it sounds like, you know, some bands might want you to be more involved than others. Um, when you do get involved in the songwriting, you know, how involved do you get with that? Are you going to the degree of writing lyrics? Or are you writing just parts? Are you actually like building songs together? How, how does that typically look for you? Yeah, um, I'm not. I get involved with the songwriting as far as listening to the demos and and you know, telling them what ideas are really working or if there's something going on, you know, if I hear something overall in their writing that needs to be addressed as far as maybe, um, the songs sometimes feel like they're rambling, you know, that they need to, you know, get a little more, uh, concise and rhythmic with their, their phrasing, or if the chorus, the lyrics are, you know, uh, they need to be tightened up because they feel like they're, they're rambling a bit. Um, I don't really get into writing specific parts, um, but I will address the nuts and bolts of the of the song, and and that's something I really like to make sure is handled. That we we have a lot of what the songs are going to be, and that the songs are in a really good place, uh, ideally before they they even come in, uh, because once they're in, our time is limited. And so there's all this time before and there, there isn't the pressure they can kind of relax and, and we can go back and forth on things. 
So I, I find that to be a really important part of the process. For sure. So it sounds like pre-production is a really big, big role in your process. Yeah. And like I say, I don't get into specifically writing parts, but, but definitely into um, what's working and if it's not what, you know, why it's not working and, and, and to have them keep working on things until yep. we get it right. So typically how far in advance from when you start in the studio, do you start your pre-production process? Well, for me, in a sense, it almost starts right away. And, and so ideally three to six months out of just being in the process where, where they're sending demos and, and we're talking about stuff. And so, yeah, uh, preferably months before they, they come in. Yep. I think that that's awesome. That's a good point because there's so many bands out there that just write songs and think, okay, well, we've got 10 songs now. Now let's go to the studio. And, you know, they're ready to record it right now. They've been sitting on a bunch of those songs for maybe a year, who knows. And uh, I, I like that you said like three to six months because for some people that seems like a really long time before even entering the studio. But I think it just it forces people to rethink their work and actually like work on it, you know, rather than just get so committed to the songs. Absolutely. Uh, the thing is, is that this is a, you know, the, this is a tough business and yeah, the band, if they're, if they're really trying to make a go of it, they've really got to take, take it seriously where, yeah. And if you're having a producer, part of the potential of that producer's role is to help them with, with, the songs and it doesn't have to be the actual writing but to to push them to to pick the best songs and create something where it's like yeah let's get it you know and i'm doing that there's a band that i'm working with now and and we actually have put off recording which i think is great because they've got some really cool songs but they're like you know we're getting a sense of this and i think we can keep pushing this and get something even better because the whole thing is is it, it it completely comes down to the song because I can work with a band and we can take a mediocre song and make it sound amazing and have it have these certain sounds and make it interesting and punchy and dynamic. But if the nuts and bolts uh, could have been a lot better then you know. Yeah, for sure. So then what are some of the common mistakes that you see artists making before they even go into the studio or mistakes with their songwriting? Well, like I said, you know, uh, this thing with efficiency in the song, if you really listen, in fact, it, you know, the more pop a song is, it's, it, there's a certain level of simplicity and efficiency. And if you take a great artist, like I think of Tom Petty, who was able to take a s simple ideas, but make them really memorable and emotionally really hit you. And Sometimes, uh, uh, you know, I've worked with bands where they're just taking way too long to say what they need to say, feeling that every single word has to be in there. And it's really about trimming the fat and, and you know, part of it uh, and, and finding the sense of how do you say what you need to say efficiently uh, and melodic, melodically too efficiently, uh, where you're not just kind of going all over the place, you know you find that spot where the melody just hits. And it's also a tough, you know, I'm talking technical about it, but it's also a very mysterious thing. So you're really just also looking for the gems, the ones that just work. And, and after you're going through that process that for whatever reason, these certain songs are standing out about above these others. Uh, and sometimes that takes time to develop. Uh, so th the thing you were saying, what's missing or what do bands do? Uh, a big thing is that uh, they don't take the time, and so uh, you know these t uh, tours, they get these opportunities, and things come up. But the record is the thing that you're doing to generate your future audience and tours, and and so sometimes they're not taking what I think the time is needed to develop the material before they come in. Definitely, like the the record is the product. Yeah, right. right. Without, without that, you have nothing else. Yeah, and sometimes I'm working with bands that have a certain level of success, and they're taking advantage of all these tour opportunities. But around the time of recording, you know, we got to figure out how to balance it because, you know, yeah, you've got the, a new record coming up. So then, in your opinion, what ultimately makes a good song? 
Yeah, it's a good question. Like I say, there's a, it's a weird thing because there's technical aspects. Um, on one end, when I'm working with a band, if they have enough sense of certain technical things, it's just to keep writing and writing. And at some point, there's just what, you know, these gems, that, you know, this this thing that has this, this balance. Uh, the melody is a huge, huge deal, obviously because you can have uh, almost any set of chords. There's, I think there's that thing on YouTube where the guy takes the same four chords and he plays, you know, about <laughs> 50 songs uh, that are with that. the same exact chord progression. Right, right. And so uh, it, it's a lot to do with the melody. And I think overall, there's also a thing about the simplicity of it, that at a certain point, as soon, like on the extreme end, you have, uh, you know, uh, dream theater, you know, uh, you, you have these very complicated or, you know, as it gets really complicated chord wise starts turning into jazz, you know? Yeah. Uh, but songs, as far as what, what I'm talking about or the general hit song or just a good song, there's a, a certain simplicity to it. And like I say, I, I would say an efficiency to it where in a simple way you're getting across what you want to say. And then melodically, that's like an overall thing. And the other thing to me, there's a lot of intuitive, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling it, you know, uh, mm -hmm. with, with my gut. It's just like, what makes a good song? It's like, I got to hear it and, and it's got to hit me in a certain way. Uh, and this is what struck me about the Beatles because, uh, when, when I was like 11 years old, a, a, a very young friend turned me on to the Beatles and I just became obsessed with them because there was a certain uh perfection to most if not all of their songs it was just like how did these guys do this for sure yeah I, I, as you were mentioning simplicity and melody and all that stuff i immediately just thought of the beatles as well and obviously i could see where you get your inspiration from because they were the kings of that right a absolutely and i'd say tom petty was a another i mean uh certain songs he did that were incredibly simple Free Fallen, mm -hmm. uh, which is just an amazing song. And how the whole idea, it's a very simple idea, Free Fallen. And then he has as he's telling his story during the verse. And it all comes back around to that one phrase uh, for the chorus. It doesn't elaborate. And, and at the same time, this isn't set in stone, too. It's like there's all kinds of songs and... and some artists write in a certain way and it and it just has this perfection. So that's part of my thing is, you know, what kind of artist am I dealing with and finding their their own that the songs have this certain perfection that's that's true to them because I can't just say, hey, you've got to completely simplify and just do this, this, and this, and then you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. it, it it does depend on the situation and the type of uh artist I'm dealing with. So then for people who are coming to you and and they're Maybe it's like more of a progressive artist that's trying to do something a little more technical or like I think of you had mentioned Dream Theater, um, but then to, to reference one of your works, I think of Further Seems Forever. And oh, the, yeah, and the drums go. were like very different for that yes. genre, right? right? Very technical, odd time signatures. You know, how do you approach projects like that where it is kind of pushing the boundary in that genre and it is a little bit more progressive to some degree? It very much so. Now, that's the other thing uh, is for me, my biggest commitment is to create something that really feels authentic to the band. So a band like that, it, it wasn't really about trying to come up with a, a hit single. Uh, it was just about making great emotional music. And they had so many things that were original. One of the things being the style of the of the drummer. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes in a band like that where it's a very special unique band it's a lot about what you don't do what what you don't try to impose you just let them do their thing and then you're just kind of you know shaping it or suggestions or or however uh and and i added certain instruments on that as well and it was a collaborative effort of working together that really worked with the band to create something that, that felt authentic and really felt emotional. And that's, 
that's definitely one of the strongest examples of, uh, you know, one of the most unique bands that I've worked with. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's also interesting too, because you've worked on, you worked on their first three records and in each of those records, there was lineup changes, most notably with the singers. Um, and it seems like a lot of bands place their identity in their singer and very few bands seem to be able to make the follow-up with a new singer that kind of continue that legacy or that sound. But I, I think you managed to nail it on all three records. So I was wondering how the approach was going into those records. Was the idea to make it sound like the previous records, but with a new singer? Or were they going after a new identity? Yeah, good question. I, that, that's a really good, that band is a good example of of, uh, of just that they changed with with each record. The second record was touchy because there was a big consideration of what they had done with the first one, which had gotten them the success that they had. And the fact that it was a different singer, which was Chris Carava from dashboard confessional. And that the singer you know, I've said this before on other podcasts that, that the singer, uh, the new singer, uh, had a lot of pressure and he was dealing with it in the studio. And, uh, and so we had to kind of, the band is so uniquely themselves, so there wasn't anything to change necessarily because they just wrote the way they wrote. And it was more with each singer just making sure that it felt true. And then for me, uh, I'm not really thinking about what I did before. It's more just um, being in the process. And we've already talked about it. It's really making sure that we've discussed things. And with that second record in particular, we had to stop in the middle to have a discussion to kind of get back on board because the singer was definitely going through some stuff and and uh, kind of figure out what do we need to do to, to, to make this happen because he had a lot of things he was feeling pressure about. He, he wasn't happy with what he was writing. Uh, there were a few things going on. And, and, uh, and we all talked and... and he was able to really get back to a, a great place and really write from his heart about it. And we ended up making a, a, a great record with that. And then with the third singer, it was a very different situation again because uh, we had a very different style of singer and and that was a very unique situation. And so, yeah, it was more just feeling each situation and just having that a commitment of what are we trying to do and and, you know, having that commitment of it being authentic and emotional for sure and and i think that um i can't remember the name of the song offhand but i remember hearing one of the songs that eventually made the third album with john bunch but jason gleason had also recorded a version with that and i, I believe they put it out there uh um, yeah they did yeah yeah and i remember hearing those two like distinct voices and it like musically it was the same but it just completely changed the feel of it with a different singer and and one thing that I feel really defines your sound as a producer is that you always seem to have this way of really capturing the emotion and the sentiment of the song. And I always feel like I'm really like in a trance almost with the singers because you've managed to get a lot of emotion out of them. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about how you track vocals and what it is that you do to help capture that right feel for the song. Oh, cool. Cool. Well, first of all, thanks. Um, yeah, with vocals, uh, and that is a big thing for me uh, in in the process. Um, and I and I am involved quite a bit in in working with the singer, and so at the so and I'm trying to think. Yeah, pretty much was doing it back then as well. I kind of have a process, and and we do a few takes, and it can be anywhere from six takes sometimes it's up to like 10 takes i don't like to do too many more than that and on the first couple takes i'll usually just have them do their thing of how they're saying it but then in the following takes i'll kind of do what i what i call just finding out what they can do I'll feel feel them out and have them do things that they usually don't do and it might be where it's like hey sing this sing this part again but but overdo the emotion um, or overdo the enunciation, uh, uh, which, you know, overpronounce the words. Um, and there's something very interesting in doing that because uh, at that point, I'm not necessarily looking for the whole take 
uh, to be perfect. I'm looking for certain how how they're saying certain things or how it feels, and also things that they haven't tried before. Because a singer will sing the way that he sings, but sometimes if he what he thinks is overdoing the emotion, will have this really powerful emotional sound. And when he hears it back, it's like, oh, okay, that's cool. And it gives him new things to, to try out. Now, it depends how experienced or if I've worked with the singer before. Uh, so it's more so when, when it's the first time that I've worked with a particular singer. And then what happens after we have all those takes where they've tried it different ways, um, I like to go through and I'll comp different pieces together. Um, and that's something that I feel pretty strong as far as a, a, one of my strong points is taking different vocal takes and putting the pieces together and just coming up with something uh, that that really emotionally communicates uh, in the song. I love that. I think that that's, that's an amazing tactic, you know, like it forces, it forces them to feel out those changes, which is very, very cool. It's a really cool thing, particularly about uh, pr- over pronouncing the words um, because one to, to try to see if you can get to understand the lyric better. It's not always the case that it needs to be like that. But it, it without singing louder, sometimes pronouncing the words more, they convey power and authority and intention uh, in the vocal. And sometimes it's just even a couple words in the line where, you know, maybe the lines sound a little overdone, but these couple of words just had this thing to it. So um, it's amazing what those things can do to to communicate uh, emotion. Now, are you getting the singers to do, like, do you typically record a full pass of the song through or do you break it down into little sections? It depends on who the singer is. Okay. Um, Most of the time we're doing sections. um, And a couple times I've had where because of the the style of the singer and because they're just really, really good. um, One guy is uh, Jason Lancaster, who was in the band Go Radio. And uh, Jason's amazing. And I literally would just, he just needed to be in the right emotional space. And I just had him do four takes beginning to end. And then it was like, okay, I got what I need. You know, sometimes it's maybe working on a little section here and there, but a lot of times it was just like, that's it. And then I'll do my thing with, with the comping. Mm-hmm. And I'd imagine that while people are experimenting with these different styles or uh, different pronunciations or emphasis or whatever, that pitch probably plays a, a role because, you know, they're maybe thinking about it too much. So do you then kind of get a sense of like, oh, that that kind of sounds cool. Like we should just completely redo that again and let's nail the pitch or, or like how how do you go about that? Are you trying to sometimes recreate those those um, I, I, I guess I guess like those experiments, are you trying to recreate them after they've done it and like perfect it? Or do you prefer to just keep it raw and work with what you got? I prefer to work with what I have. I, I, the, the thing that pitch correction, and I would say even more specifically, uh, the software Melodyne, which can actually manipulate pitch and timing. The good thing about that is that, uh, because there can be that situation where the singer is having to think about too much. And so I'm really focusing on them on the emotion. And what's great about that is that they can pour their heart and soul into it. And if something's slightly off, it's no big deal. Or if the phrasing was a little bit off, but the emotion, that thing of really intending, uh, and, and the power or that they were really feeling the moment, um, there, there's, they didn't have to also think about hitting the pitch perfectly. Of course, they have to be in a certain range, you know, mm-hmm. uh, for it to work. Um, and then if the pitch, if it's wobbly, and that's something I work on with the singer too, months before they come in, is I talk to them and see if they've had vocal training. Uh, I'm a big fan of them uh, at least trying out some vocal training or if they did it earlier in their life to pick it back up, uh, to be in as strong a place technically as they can be. Uh, so that when they're really feeling it emotionally, that, that, that I've got more to work with. So definitely. 
Yeah, like I said earlier, like I, I feel that every time I've listened to songs that you've worked on, the singer is just it. It's it's entrancing. Like you just you you learn you just get wrapped up in the emotions of what they're singing, and and uh, I think that that's something you capture extremely well. Awesome, and, awesome, cool. And even even you know I, listening to some of your new material versus stuff that you did years ago, like it's it's been consistent all the way through. And I think of like the the very first Dashboard records. Those ones like Chris Caraba's voice just sounds amazing. It's just <laughs> you, you're feeling everything he says, and and uh, I, I guess I'm curious, like how much of that was those experimental things that you were trying out versus you know what did he have in mind going in? Well, Chris and, and I, I don't think I really dealt with him on telling him to be more emotional because he was very consciously bringing. Uh, this certain type of music where it was extremely emotional. So Chris was doing his thing and, and Chris has come a long way. And so I would say at that point, it was very much a collaborative effort as far as that he would perform however many vocal takes. And, and I know we did this section by section but he was still developing. He he still had, uh, and he even w was, uh, at least at some point uh, in in the stuff that we were doing doing together. He did take some lessons from my mother, who's a vocal coach, and so. But there was a bit of editing to make it work. But then Chris, over the years, a, as he was taking you know vocal lessons or or working on his craft, you know he certainly. Uh, developed so that was kind of a, a good collaborative effort at that time in his in his vocal uh, ability to really bring it emotionally and then I was you know use, using some things to 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 get the pitch and the and the timing but the end result it's definitely one of the things I'm most proud about is is uh just just the whole vibe and feel of uh, the stuff that we did together for sure so in addition to producing these records you're you're engineering a lot of these records as well right yes okay um so one of the questions that i had related to dashboard uh one of our listeners aaron guevara he reached out and he was asking if you can describe the process of dis of recording the guitars for the places that you've come to fear the most record and especially the song the brilliant dance he was asking if you can kind of give some details on how it was mic'd was it double tracked was there anything like any sort of secret sauce that helped make it sound so gorgeous. Like the guitars on that track are, are phenomenal. Uh, cool. Cool. Well, thanks again. Uh, you know, I very much remember that because it was, uh, it, it had a lot to do with that. I was recording out of my second floor apartment at that time. Uh, it was at the early stages of my career and I basically just decided to go for it and, get some equipment and I took my walk-in closet and had a carpenter come in and bought a whole bunch of soundproof materials and it was a little mini recording room uh the the floor was raised and uh, but it was pretty small and because of that it was a challenge to get a good acoustic guitar recording and so with Chris at the time the way that it really worked was to, I had a microphone, which I think it was like a Neumann tube mic uh, style. I think it was a Lawson microphone. Um, I don't remember the model, but it was the one that was emulating the, the, the U47, the tube U47. Uh, I'm pretty sure I had that at about the 12th fret or between the 12th fret and the sound hole. Uh, but the thing that really made that guitar work was mixing mixing it in with the DI, and so that was a combination of the microphone and 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 the DI, and then just the way that Chris's guitar sounded. I'm pretty sure he was using a Gibson. I don't think it was any type of high end model. I think it was you know probably a three or four hundred dollar uh, guitar. Wow. And uh, you could probably see it if you saw early pictures of of what he was playing back then, and just the combination of those things. And I may have done like a little bit of chorusing on just the DI and then, you know, with the double tracking uh, and, and a little, you know, room reverb sound. 
yeah, created this certain sound and it sounded really cool. So I love that. I love that story because it, it just, again, kind of emphasizes the, the fact that people can make records that go on to become massive successes in a small bedroom, like you said, right? And just turning a closet into a booth, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing to hear stories like that. Absolutely. Like be, I'm one end. I took, you know, my, my career path, uh, was very homegrown and, and at the same time I wanted to sound like the pros. So it was a very ongoingly frustrating process of listening to records that were done in quote unquote real studios and then trying to create that sound in, in an apartment. And, uh, but what I found is if you really dug deep enough and you were really willing to commit and took some time and kept doing things wrong or however, uh, then you could do, you could find a way to do it. Um, these days we have YouTube and, and sites like yours, uh, a wealth of information. And so there's actually a lot of advantages for the person who's doing it by themselves. Um, to be able to learn. Um, but in the end too, it's a matter of just using your ears, doing it again and again, being willing to, to, to fail and do something and be like, man, this, this is not sounding like these great records. What do I have to do? And just keep doing it. Uh, and, and, you know, find, find that way that you can do it. For sure. Yeah. It's all about experimenting and really learning the nuances of mic positioning and, all yes. the other processors and all that stuff along the way. So, I mean, you, you had mentioned making mistakes and learning from those kind of things as we, as you were in the early stages of your career, maybe you're still making some mistakes in that experimental phase, right? I think that that's something that we all, we all continue to do. Um, Absolutely. Do you have any examples of anything that maybe went like horribly wrong in a session that you just, at the end, like you had this really big learning moment and if so, like what, what did you get out of that experience? I think that the story that I could give is with mixing where just you do the best you can and no matter what you're, you're going to come up short for, for quite a few years. And so I know when I initially went over and I had an opportunity to mix on the big console, the, this SSL and, and sometimes it part of the process is that you, you get thrown into the fire, you get these situations and you've just got to come through. And so I had to mix, uh, I had like 10 days to mix this record on this SSL. And the whole thing was almost pretty psychologically damaging because, you know, I'm just trying to get the best sound that I could. And, and, and one end, I don't know a whole lot of what I'm doing or even early on when I was trying to record an albums on, uh, the small digital Roland VS 880 recorder. And the results were just not, and, but the band would be happy and, and I would, you know, but just spending the time over and over again to just try to get something decent. But the reality that particularly in the early stages, you're going to do the best you can and you're going to, hopefully you're doing things in a way where the band is, is happy with what they're getting. Hopefully you're, you're charging something where we're at that level. They're, they're going to be happy with the results, but inside you could be dying because it's just like, this is, I'm not even close. <laughs> it's like perfectionism. Uh, yeah. You're just trying, well, you're trying to get online with, with the guys that, that are uh, inspiring you and the pros. If you're trying to be a pro, you want to do that kind of work. Um, so I remember with one record uh, uh, that I mixed it and the whole EQ curve was just, you know, it was mid-rangey and the mix wasn't bad, but it's just something you re that I realized on the, I had 10 days to mix and it's something that I realized on the 10th day, you know, <laughs> that it was just like, oh man, you've got, and you just want to, you know, uh, yeah, you just want to scream. Uh, and very fortunately in that particular situation, the mastering engineer, uh, was able to, uh, to, to make it sound good and to, to save it in that, in that regard. Um, and that's just, uh, you know, what happens, uh, I'm trying to think of a specific story, you know, I mean, no, but I think that that's a, that's a good story that you just gave there because 
you know, there there are a lot of times when we we get lost in our work and we're we're so focused on whatever it is that we're doing at the time and then it's it, it is that perfectionist in all in all of us where you know we're trying to get the best sounding record and um I, i'm curious like after you went through that experience of, of basically being at the end of the project and being like oh crap it's really mid-heavy you know what how did that change your approach next time around did you do anything different to prevent that from happening again yeah, I made sure that uh, I listened to my references uh, immediately for the room um, because I was I was mixing in a different room and I wasn't really used to the speakers. And that's a big thing anyway, even in, uh, uh, well, even now with speakers that I know really well uh, that, you know, I get a reference from the band to get a sense of the EQ curve they're looking for or a general sound and i hear what that sounds like on my speakers right at the beginning because i've done things where i'll feel confident that what i'm doing is fine and then it's like oh you know let me just bring up a reference and then it's like oh crap you know this, mm -hmm. this needs to have more bass or or the way the high end is um and then i have to make adjustments and then i'm you know taking time i didn't need to take for sure. Now, do you prefer to work in like bigger studios now, or do you just, do you have a home base that you try to get all of your projects to go through or how, how do you approach that? At this point I'm working at home and, and, uh, I've taken a long time to, to figure out the gear that I needed. But one thing that was good. And, and if anybody who's doing this has an opportunity in a, in a period of time that they can explore is to go into some big studios uh and you know sometimes tracking drums you know i'll track at, at another place i can get good drums here uh but sometimes you know particular studios where the drum room if the budget's there uh i was just at a studio in colorado and the guy had taken a house and really did a studio build uh and it was up in the mountains and it was amazing and the room sounds amazing when i get the tracks back it's like wow you know uh it just had that really high level pro uh, sound to it. Um, but at this point, so, so the thing I'm saying is to, to particularly if you can mix in some other studios and just get a feel of what a big console sounds like and what, you know, uh, professional studios are sounding like, um, and have that reference and that experience. Uh, and at this point for me, I've done that enough, uh, and have gone back and forth where I've gotten where I'm at out of my home uh, uh, as far as uh, tracking and mixing to, to, to be at a, a pro level. Like I said, the only thing for me is maybe, maybe drums, though uh, the drums I'm getting are really good. But if I'm talking about that real top level of recording, that's where it takes some money to have a really good room. For sure. Now, you've talked about how you started in a small bedroom and then you've gone to some of the bigger studios, spent some time on the SSL boards and learned how to how to use those. And and now you're at a home studio. I'm assuming you don't have a big SSL board at your home studio. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I considered it a few times and ultimately I'm really glad I didn't. Um, you know, uh, right now I'm using a, a hybrid setup. Um, I personally am not a fan of mixing in the box. I like to go, I like to have summing done analog, you know, even if it's, uh, you know, four or eight stems, it to me makes a, a really big difference in terms of how open and, and more of an analog punchy sound, which is what I really, you know, really go for. So now is that a result of the fact that you got to spend some time in those bigger studios? Like Absolutely. what, yeah. what was it about those bigger studios that, you were able to then take and translate to your home studio. Cause obviously the, the big room, you know, if in a in a small home studio, you're not going to have that for, for mixing or, or for recording, but you know, what other elements were you able to take from those big studios and, and transfer over to your home studio? Well, hearing what the, the big consoles sound like. Uh, and so, you know, and, and I haven't heard a whole lot, but I've heard that an API console, and I've heard a few SSLs um, and a Neve 9098, which is, you know, these are unbelievable uh, pieces of machinery. And it's very different when, when 
when you when you split up your tracks uh, on on a big SSL console. Uh, just the it has a sound and it has an openness and it has a punch to it. Uh, and for me, when I would do stuff there and compare when I was initially doing stuff in the box, there was no comparison. And I knew there was you know my chops. But I could even hear it with pros, you know, uh, where stuff was done in the box. Now, there's some guys who are really, really good with it. Uh, there's a guy named Serban Gia. I think yep. that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, and he's amazing. Um, but still, for me personally, my biggest mixing hero is Chris Lord Algae. Um, of course, I think he's, his, he's like that for most people. <laughs> right, right. And it's because when you like... Uh, one of the first things I heard from him, and that's when I was like, oh my God, this is really what you can do uh, with mixing, uh, was a band called Blindside, and, and the album was called Silence. Uh, and I think Howard Benson had produced it. And listening to that record, and, and it was like, who mixed this? You know, and it's like, oh, it's this guy, Chris Lord Algae. And, uh, and as I just, you know, kept studying, uh, the, and just the kind of sound he would get, and uh, you know, and a part, of, big part of that sound is that SSL console. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, uh, you know, with with the way that I'm doing things now, I mean, there's some really cool software too. Uh, but there's just certain things that I'm doing, and it gets it to be enough, you know. Uh, sir, you know, because there is a budget consideration, uh, but then also because I just have my system down at this point. And, and it took me a long time. It's really over the last, really for me over the last year where it's like, all right, this is a sound that uh, I'm, I'm really happy with and get, gets that kind of sound that I'm looking for. Yeah. So you had mentioned having a system. What, what, what does that system entail? Um, well, two of the main pieces uh, are, well, one is a dangerous two-bus summing mixer. And then the other is uh, I use Burl converters. Um, I have a thing called the Mothership. Mm -hmm. And I just really like that combination. The, the Burls kind of emulate the old tape machine kind of electronics. And so on one end, they're not purist type of converters. But on the other, for me, they have they really just give things this smooth and pleasing organic type of sound. And that for me is a a really big deal. So, mm -hmm. and I guess this kind of somewhat ties back to what we were talking about earlier about kind of seeking perfectionism, you know, and, and how you've, you've taken things from different areas and, and you, we've learned lessons along the way. And like, how do you know when you're done working on your pro productions or your mixes? Like, is there something that just, is it just like a matter of referencing something and being like, yeah, that sounds like it's in the ballpark. It's good, good enough for me. Or when do you know you're done? Um, for me, it's an emotional feeling thing. Um, and, and I think for me, I've kind of, I started out where I was genuinely like an over the top perfectionist, um, where even to the point of suffering a lot, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and over the years have really, you know, kind of looked at distilled down what's important. What's, what are the things that matter? because there's a place to put your attention and focus and really put your all into it. And then there's things to, to let go. And so for me, particularly in a mix, it, there's a feeling with it. I'm certainly, there's a lot of little details I'm going into, but once it hits a certain mark and it emotionally is, is feeling like it, it's got to have that. It feels like a record kind of thing, but, it, but I really feel like the song is emotionally uh, expressing uh, what it's supposed to. Once I hit that mark, then I'll start going back and forth with the artist on just like little, little touch-ups. Cause I've also found particularly in mixing, I'll maybe sometimes I'll go for what I think is going to be all these cool details. And then the artist sends me back notes that are like undoing some of those things. <laughs> and so I realize it's like, okay, why don't I just get this where it's feeling really good? And I've got a lot of things, you know, out of the way as far as where the vocal sitting and the a certain dynamic flow in the energy, but not to get too specific and just feel out where 
the artist is at. And then we'll go back and forth. And then I may have other little adjustments and, you know, I might talk to him about it or, or try it, but that's my overall process with that. Yeah. I think that's important to have is like having that feedback loop of, you know, sending it off to the artist, maybe not to your like perfectionist ideal, but like being like, Hey, where, where do you think it's at right now? Do you like it? Whatever. And maybe they love it and you're done. Right. Or, or exactly. Yeah. Or there's just a few things. Um, or they want certain things and I get a feel for what, how they're seeing the, the, the little bells and whistles. Now, when it's something that I'm producing and mixing, I have more of a sense of what I'm specifically looking for. Yeah. You're working on it along the way kind of thing. Yeah. And then I'm working with the band and, and sometimes I'm, I'm not necessarily needing to fight for, for what I want, but, but, uh, that I have all, certain things are like, I really specifically am intending this, you know, um, and then hopefully the band is, is, you know, usually, usually the band's going along with, with a lot of it. Uh, but sometimes there's certain things and, and ultimately I'm working, uh, for the band, uh, to get across what, what they're looking for. So, of course. So in terms of your system, um, do you typically just mix one song and then as you mix the song, you send that to the band to get their notes or do you like to kind of just go for it and, and mix a whole bunch of songs at once, send them to the band, get their critique or get their mix notes for all the songs at once? Um, actually I, I, I find doing one song and not, not needing to get all the specifics out of the way, but to make sure that the vibe, that I'm hitting the vibe that they're looking for, um, to really make sure the tone of the mix is good because you certainly don't want to do a bunch of songs and then find that they were, you know, Hey, there's, you know, the, the drums have too much room sound or this, this, this kind of thing. Um, I want to find out on the first song, uh, usually that's setting a tone for the whole record. Um, now a recent record I did, uh, this band hands like houses, um, the vibe was very different for all of the songs. And, uh, and so it was almost like a first mix for, for each song. The drum vibe had its own thing. The, the whole thing, uh, it was one of the few, few times that I had to, had to, to do that. Um, Interesting. but usually it's more of a tone thing and, and I want to get that right on the first mix. So in a case like sure that, where every song sounds different, how are you making the album cohesive? Yeah, that's uh, interesting. Um, it's well, a bit of it. Uh, most of it really has to come from the the production and what they did. I guess for me, you know, in this case, it was I kind of just went with it to see what would happen, and uh, because even though the guitar tones were different, there was still like a lot of pedals and fuzz, and it still had this type of tone to the record. So it, it ended up not really being an issue, even though the songs very much have their own vibe. Got it. Um, yeah. Cool. So there's a lot of people that are listening to this podcast who are maybe just getting started. And I was curious if you had any advice for someone who's just starting off with producing, how do you, you know, what do you recommend for people to dive in? Well, um, you know, one, of course, you know, they, they've got to go for that very initial stage of getting their gear together. And, and, uh, and so let's say once they have enough gear to, to record with one, just start doing it, just be in the process. I, you know, the thing that's always carried me through is I've just had that undying passion for it. But then the other thing, and it's an advantage that, uh, people have today that I didn't have is, uh, websites uh, like yours uh, and and YouTube is a huge resource and that you know you just start doing it and you start seeing where you're weak and and uh, and break it down be like okay I'm seeing that my snare drum uh, just is not sounding good it's not sounding like these records that I'm hearing and why is that and and kind of break down specifically uh, the the issues that you're having and then just be in, you know, uh, uh, learning, learning from these guys like like me that are that have done it, uh, and and maybe guys specific aspects of the recording process 
that you can learn from. For sure. I, I love that. It's, it's so important to learn the skills, obviously, and, and to have that trial and error that we were talking about earlier to really develop that craft. So I, I like that answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's almost obvious, you know. Uh, uh, and then the thing of using references, you know, the thing of like listening to a, a, a recording and a mix uh, that's just, you know, if at, at that starting point is way out of your league and just try to figure it out. You know, just try to, you know, keep that, 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 that's part of the, the excitement of the, of the process is trying to figure out how to, how to get that sound or even, uh, researching if, if any, some, you know, these days, sometimes, uh, that particular, uh, mixer, uh, or engineer has, uh, done a podcast about, you know, and we'll mention that record and you can kind of, you know, figure it out. For sure. Now we should probably start to wrap things up a little bit here. How can people follow you online and learn more about the projects that you're currently working on? Yeah, well, I'd say the biggest way is uh, my website, uh, which is jamespaulwisner.com, W-I-S-N-E-R.com. Uh, and on there, they can, they can get a sense. Uh, and then I also have a, a Facebook a business page, which is uh, Wisner Productions on on facebook and those are the two main things right now uh that they can get a sense of the work that i've done and and work that i'm doing awesome and are there any cool projects that you're working on right now that you're excited to talk about or that you can talk about yeah yeah uh you know uh, well production wise i'm i'm we're just getting into the beginning stages of talking about the next uh, uh the dangerous summer record which uh is a an amazing band and we did a a record I was very excited about uh, last year, but we're going to be probably recording sometime over the next two or three months uh, on the new record. But on the mixing end, which I've been getting more into lately, uh, 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 two records, for, both for the same label, Hopeless Records, and one is the new uh, Hands Like Houses. Uh, the new record's called Anon, and uh, they've already released a couple of singles, but I've mixed uh, a lot of that record. What was a real uh, pleasure for me is that the guy who mixed the singles uh, is Tom Lord Algae. Uh, oh, no way. Yeah, Chris Lord Algae's brother. And, and so it was very, very cool that he was mixing the singles. And uh, and then I got to mix, uh, uh, I'm not sure if most or, or if all of the rest of the record. I'm very excited about how it sounds. A really uh, uh, well-produced uh, record. That's very cool. Yeah. So are you producing it in addition to mixing it? No, or? no, no, no. Uh, okay. uh, uh, these guys, uh, Colin Bertain and Alex uh, uh, Prieto, or Prieto uh, produced it and did an amazing job on it. Uh, and then I had the pleasure of uh, mixing it. And then another record that I uh, mixed um, is a band, Stand Atlantic, and that's on Hopeless as well. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Well, it's funny you had mentioned kind of listening to some of the Chris Lord Alge mixes and and uh, trying to get to that caliber. And now it's it's funny that you're on the same record with his brother, you know, who obviously has a, a very similar sound, you know. So <laughs> it's like really striving to keep that consistent level of of greatness. Um, uh, yeah, and I was really glad uh, that yeah, uh, it was a uh, it was an honor actually because it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on here and, and chatting today. I think that there's a lot of great stuff that you mentioned. And I, I love just your approach to, to working with bands and getting that emotion and talking about the vocal production and all that stuff. I think that that's, that's something that I, I'm, I'm looking forward to experimenting with with my next project now. Like That, that got me super excited. So <laughs> awesome. <laughs> thank you awesome. so much. Yeah, yeah. Re uh, had a great time, Mike. Thank you so much, man. Awesome. We'll talk soon. Take care. All right. Take care. So that was my interview with James Paul Wisner. I hope that you enjoyed it just as much as I did. I think that he's a great guy and he had a lot of great advice there. And especially when it comes to the vocals, I know I said it at the beginning, but this stuff really works. And when I implemented it, it got a performance out of a singer who was just not quite giving it to me before. So I know that if you take all of the techniques and advice that James gave in this interview, you're going to start to see improvements in your recordings and you're going to be able to produce better records and, and make a much bigger imprint in the music industry as a result of it. So thanks again to James for being on here. James, you rule. And guys, if this is your first time listening to the Master Mix podcast, please make sure to subscribe on whatever 
whatever podcast platform you listen to, whether it's iTunes or Android or wherever, it just lets you keep on top of new episodes as they're released. I've got a few in the pipeline ready to go, so I can't wait for you to hear those. And also, if this is your first time hearing about Master Your Mix, please make sure to check out the website MasterYourMix.com. It's my website where I help engineers and home studio guys learn to develop their craft and improve their mixes. And right now I'm giving away a free download on the website. It's called The Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. It is a free guide to using EQ and compression so that you can learn how to identify problems in your mix much quicker and get results much faster as well. So make sure to check that out. It's 100% free. So that's pretty much it for today's episode. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you guys in the next one. We'll see you then. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com. 